0: Welcome to The Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Love, and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On The Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers, and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. Welcome to the first episode of The Director's Chair for 2021. A lot has happened since our last episode. Donald Trump has fled to Mar-a-Lago, but he hasn't left the stage. Joe Biden has been inaugurated, and two of my guests on the director's chair last year have been appointed to high office in the new administration. Jake Sullivan, with whom I spoke in September, is now, at the age of 44, the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. Kurt Campbell, my guest in December, is now the President's Indo-Pacific Coordinator and a force within the National Security Council. So, good things happen to people who come on the director's chair. I certainly hope this is the case for my first guest for 2021, an old friend of the Lowy Institute, David Petraeus. Dave is one of the most interesting and influential American public figures in recent decades. After graduating from West Point and completing Ranger School, he was commissioned into the infantry of the U.S. Army. As a junior officer, he received a master's degree and a doctorate in international relations from Princeton. He rose rapidly through the ranks. He rewrote the U.S. approach to counterinsurgency, led the 2007 surge in Iraq, and was commander of U.S. Central Command between 2008 and 2010, when he was appointed commander of U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan. He then served as the director of the CIA between 2011 and 2012. He's now a partner at KKR and chairman of the KKR Global Institute. General Petraeus has received many foreign decorations, including most importantly, of course, the Order of Australia. And in 2015, he came to Sydney to deliver the Lowy Lecture. So thank you, Dave Petraeus, for joining me on the Director's Chair.
1: It is great to be reunited with you, Michael. Thanks.
0: Dave, let me start with your upbringing. Your father, Sixtus Petraeus, was originally from the Netherlands. How did he come to the United States? Tell us about your dad and your mum.
1: So my father was, again, born and raised in the Netherlands. He went to the Dutch version of the Merchant Marine Academy. He was at sea as a young Merchant Marine officer when the Nazis overran Holland. Uh, They couldn't go back to Rotterdam, needless to say. So they sailed up uh, from the Caribbean to New York Harbor and turned into the Navy Yard and signed on with the U.S. Merchant Marine. Uh, The Merchant Marine during World War II was part of the armed forces. Uh, It happened to be the service that had the highest per capita loss rate of all of the services because of the enormous loss of ships and and crews uh, in the North Atlantic uh, before the advent of radar and longer range uh, aircraft and so forth uh, to the U-boats and the, also the battleships that would come out of the fjords in Norway when they would ultimately have to sprint from their last safe harbor up in the northern part of uh, the UK mm-hmm. around the North Cape to Murmansk, And that was only open a few months a year at that point in time because of the very uh, heavy ice that would be there during the winter. So he did a Murmansk run. It took months to do it. They lost a large number of the ships uh, in that convoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made it obviously uh, had some very close calls, including this, a torpedo that they saw come at them and go underneath them and not explode. It was a magnetic one, not an impact one. And they literally saw the weight continue at the other side. But uh, mm-hmm. needless to say, that was a very, very close call. The North Atlantic was a very, very dangerous place for many years of the war, and it was a very long war as well.
0: So he ended up making his life in the United States with your mom, Miriam, and I believe you grew up just a few miles away from the U.S. Military Academy in West Point.
1: Yeah, seven miles north of West Point. In fact, literally the next village around uh, the mountain, there's a very large mountain that separates West Point from my hometown. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. Uh, we had sailboats, plural. Usually I had my own as a kid. And it wasn't just a little tiny one that you could flip over and turn back over if you mm-hmm. flipped it over. And I did, unfortunately, uh, much to the sigrin of the old mm-hmm. sea captain. Uh, it had to be towed in upside down and mm-hmm. then slings around it and a crane had to haul it up. But it was wonderful. Uh, great, great education, great public schools. My mother was also a, a part-time librarian, uh, great love of books at home, and great athletic programs for kids in that town as well. It still is the case. Um, very much in the shadow of West Point, uh, I think half of the customers to whom I delivered newspapers when I was a kid for a couple of years uh, early in the morning were either West Point graduates who had retired serving West Point officers or staff and faculty of West Point. So it was a very big imprint on our community. Our soccer coach uh, had literally coached a national championship team. He was doing this for a dollar a year as a retired colonel for something to do. And and happily as a senior, we won the championship as well. You know, Br- glory days as Bruce Springsteen uh, sang. And then, you know, it... it It seems somewhat normal, I guess, to go there. Three of of us out of one class went there, which is quite a very, very large number, given that each congressman only gets one nomination uh, per year. And there there are different routes that you can go. Uh, And it turned out to be an extraordinary experience. It was the place, I guess, where I learned, you know, if you truly apply yourself and really compete, that I had the stuff to... To do that and uh, ended up graduating the top 5% of my class was also a cadet captain, which is in the rank structure of varsity Letterman. I think there were only, I think it was literally only one other person that had all three of those achievements that particular year.
0: Now, later you went to Princeton and you, as I said, you you wrote a doctorate. That's a rare thing for an infantryman to do. Why did you decide to do that? What did you Learn during the process How did it contribute to your career?
1: Well, uh, I was sent to grad school. Uh, I was given two years at grad school in preparation for teaching in the Department of Social Sciences at West Point, uh, where I was going to be headed to the international relations uh, side of that house. We had international relations and then economics, and then there was politics and government. those mm. three uh, verticals, if you will. And, you know, I thought if I was going to go there, I might as well try to make the most of it. And so I told the uh, faculty at Princeton that I would try to complete all of the coursework, all of the general exams, the oral exam, the language test, and the dissertation prospectus before I left Princeton. That meant that I had to do all of that in addition to the master's, which had its own set of general exams uh, and orals. And it was a pretty heavy lift, but it was obviously very much worth it. Um, Again, it it was very, very challenging. Literally, there was a course that I could not take because it was only offered once a year, and it was offered at the same time that I had to take another course that was required for the Ph.D., and the faculty really didn't understand that I only had two years. You mm-hmm. know, they kept saying, you should take more time. Why are you rushing through this? You know, this should be, it should be enjoyable. You should mm-hmm. do two years for the master's, then two years for the coursework and the general exams, and then take as long as you want doing the dissertation. That's what most people do. And I kept telling them, I just have two years and I've already been told that I was committing professional suicide by going to graduate <laughs> school at all, instead of going to the Ranger Regiment but it did work out uh, again what i did is i found that i learned the rules books better than anybody else and the rule said if you take a final exam in a course and get an a minus or better even if you haven't taken the course or ever showed up for in the classroom you get credit for that course and that was the case with advanced macroeconomics which as you will know michael is all about manipulating manipulating matrices and differential equations and all the rest of that, which I had to brush up on very, very substantially. Uh, and again, it was, a, it was a bit of an uphill climb, but I got an A minus and, and managed to get through that. And then I'd stumbled on the dissertation topic, which was the impact of Vietnam on military thinking about the use of force. And my view was that if you're going to spend a lot of time researching a particular subject, it ought to be one that will provide you intellectual capital on which you can draw later in your career. Mm. Assuming that you get to a certain point where you are the one who is providing advice on the use of force, uh, wouldn't it be useful to know, which is really at the end of the day, the most important task of a military leader. Mm. Uh, Not to say that there aren't lots of other important uh, endeavors that you engage in as a very senior military officer. But at the end of the day, what really matters is, again, when you're at the White House offering the president uh, options and a recommendation. And I thought I ought to learn about what did those who came before me do? uh, What did they do prior to Vietnam? What did they do after Vietnam? Was the Vietnam experience something that influenced them? And of course, the answer to that was yes, very heavily. As any visceral personal experience does when you are in crisis decision making, uh, when you have incomplete information, when the time is short, when the pressure is on, you have to make a decision. You're very, very heavily influenced, again, by what it is that was most significant in your life that you experienced. Mm. And for the generation that came before me, uh, Vietnam was a very, very substantial uh, experience for them. There, was, there were various feelings that they were let down by those in Washington. Whatever it may be, it had, it resulted, it manifested itself in enormous caution uh, and also in really a resistance in particular to engaging in, frankly, the kinds of wars that we became involved in in the post 9 11 period to the point that there was actually a degree of structuring of the U S army so that you almost couldn't go to war with the force that you had, you had to call up the reserves and the national guard. And there was a, 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 a degree in that particular structuring to make it really hard to get mm. involved in something that would smack a Vietnam again. Mm. And you'll remember Powell's rules mm. and, mm-hmm. and, and the rules that are, one of the Secretary of Weinberger's rules uh, and so forth, which were almost so restrictive uh, that other than perhaps a desert storm, which was never going to occur again because other countries saw what happened when they engaged our military oh. on a desert battlefield mm-hmm. uh, with no civilians and no urban areas and nothing else, just tank on tank. And that was a guaranteed loser
2: mm.
0: for them. Let me continue with that topic and come forward 40 years or so, you made a lot of your career in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. What impact do you think those wars are having on the U.S. military now and and the issue of the use of force?
1: Well, a bit like after Vietnam, there was a very ready and very pressing uh, need to shift to a very significant adversary. So of course, after Vietnam, the focus shifted very quickly back really, Mm -hmm. because it had been on the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact before, and now it really shifted back uh, very, very substantially. And of course, the army in which I was essentially raised was one where the focus was on the inner german border, uh, and the other mm-hmm. borders between the NATO countries and those of the Warsaw Pact. Uh, I did multiple tours in Cold War Europe, including as a speechwriter for the Supreme Allied Commander Europe. And that was the focus. Now, the the interesting fact was that we never, of course, ever fought that war, thank goodness, because it would have been a very, very bloody, costly affair. And it could, of course, have touched off the ladder of escalation that could ultimately arrive at the use of nuclear weapons. But clearly, the matter at hand is this uh, return of great power rivalries as the national security strategy developed by the great H.R. McMaster uh, for President Trump describes the context and the focus, of course, on the Indo-Pacific region uh, and the enormous rise of China and China's emergence as a competitor uh, in a variety of different respects. So you see the Department of Defense uh, not only figuratively conducting uh, a rebalance to Asia, but but physically doing the same.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you see the enormous um, it, effort to overhaul our entire Department of Defense to prepare for so-called peer competitor, uh, that being, needless to say, the two great powers, but most significantly China, to some degree Russia, uh, which is resurgent to a degree as well. And that is the focus of our military at this point in time, even as there still is uh, a good bit of fighting going on uh, in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, North Africa, West Africa, uh, in the Southern Philippines, where we have helped along with Australian forces, of course. And I think that you will find that the U.S. military in particular will be this the one military of the world that has global responsibilities. And that is actively engaged in every part of the spectrum of conflict from support to civil authorities on the home front. You know, thousands of soldiers out there right now helping with uh, vaccine administration and so forth, called up at various times, protecting our Capitol building Mm -hmm. and so on. On up through the spectrum, through irregular warfare, advise, assist, enable uh, operations. And then, of course, the preparation and the main effort being that focus on deterring possible conflict with a peer competitor. Uh, And, of course, deterrence is founded on an adversary's assessment of your capabilities and your will to employ those capabilities. And we have to keep that very much in mind. But we have a bit – I don't like the Cold War analogy because Mm – It harkens back to a time when, again, you had a face-off between the Warsaw Pact and NATO, and there was very little economic interaction between the two blocks. There certainly was particularly very little between, say, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And in contrast, needless to say, there is enormous uh, economic activity between the U.S. and China, between our allies and partners. Uh, Australia leaders of Australia often will mention to me the, the challenge, of course, of a country that has a very firm alliance with the United States. That's our Australia's principal security partner and ally. Mm-hmm. And then a the most significant economic partner on the other hand is seen as somewhat of an adversary. Uh, on the security side. So again, the the old Cold War analogy, I don't find particularly helpful in its explanatory power, but certainly there is a similarity between how the U.S. Army and really NATO focused on that Mm. as the very main effort, even as there were some irregular warfare endeavors, ongoing campaigns and the U.S. is going to be in the same situation now. And, of course, arguably the only military with global responsibilities, mm. uh, with forces deployed on every content, continent uh, in a variety of different roles around the world. And all the way up, again, the spectrum of conflict of employment from, again, civil support at home to preparation for major combat operations against a peer
0: competitor abroad. While we're on China, let me ask you what advice you would give President Biden about managing the China relationship. Uh, So far, all the signals in the first few weeks from the administration Including the, the tone of the conversations between the two presidents uh, and the, the other senior officials, has pointed to an administration that is going to emphasize competition with China over cooperation. Do you agree with that? And what would be your advice on managing relations with Beijing?
1: Well, first of all, I, I would say that the team that has been assembled is absolutely first class. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Jake Sullivan. I think he's a -a once-in-a-generation intellect and also a -a once-in-a-generation good guy. Kurt Campbell, who will be – he's elevated above all the other Mm. senior directors because Mm. he is a deputy national security advisor and coordinator for the Indo-Pacific. So he will be able to coordinate a whole-of-government approach from the U.S. and actually a whole-of-governments approach with an S on the end uh, for the overall uh, effort. Mm. Uh, Tony Blinken, brilliant. You know him, Lloyd Austin, with mm-hmm. whom I soldiered. He worked for me three times over the years, twice in combat when he was a three and a four star general. Again, a very, very strong team. And, and those who are in the, the number two positions and then these other key positions, again, very high quality people. All of whom we should remember that they were in government up until just four years ago. And mm-hmm. while they were out of government, all of them were engaged in endeavors where they maintained enormous currency. As you know, Kurt Campbell was mm-hmm. at a consulting firm on Asia. Jake Sullivan very much engaged uh, in a variety of different activities in think tanks, university, et cetera. So you have a very good team. I think they very much get it that, you know, the biggest of the big ideas is be firm, but not provocative or not needlessly provocative. Mm -hmm. I believe that what does emerge will have activities that are categorized as engagement. And it'll be at the very highest levels. And of course, the highest level had its first phone call yesterday between uh, President Biden and President Xi. And it was a firm phone call uh, on the US side, raised all the the major issues, uh, but also talked about areas that will be under the second heading, which would be cooperation. And certainly there will need to be a cooperation, not just on climate, which is the obvious one, uh, with, again, a very heavyweight figure as the presidential Mm -hmm. envoy for that, a former Secretary of State John Kerry. But there will also need to be cooperation, one would presume, on a pandemic that is a global threat. And that requires a global solution and therefore requires the two great, greatest of the great powers to lead that effort. And then obviously, also, when it comes to helping to manage the economic damage done by activities associated with the pandemic, the shutdown in various countries and so on, keeping in mind that the pandemic is going to be with us for years, not months. Uh, we may actually have inoculated enough in the United States by the mid-summer or so to where we have so-called herd immunity and and the uh, prevalence of the virus is dramatically reduced. Uh, That said, there will still be early stages of administering the vaccine in many other countries around the world. And it's true to say that no one of us is safe unless all of us are safe. And oh, by the way, we have to be very concerned that there might be vaccine resistant strains or mutations of the virus that emerge uh, during that time. Mm. So this is going to be something that will very much require global coordination. And of course, President Biden has put the US back in the World Health Organization, back in the Paris Climate Accord,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, back in the UN Human Rights Organization, a variety of other. Again, there a distinguishing feature of this administration will be uh, global engagement, and particular with uh, allies and partners. So there will be a cooperation. There's going to be a very substantial component of competition. You mentioned that that has been most predominant or most prominent uh, so far. Uh, that I think is is appropriate, uh, but they're going to look for co- cooperation if they can. Uh, as that engagement seeks to influence uh, decision-making in Beijing, appropriately so. And especially that will come in the area where the U.S. ends up concluding that the core interests are in conflict and we must deter and defend. And that will be done, again, with allies and partners. The reason for the delay in the phone call in the first place, as you know, was because the president wanted to to talk with all of our principal allies and partners around the world before he talked with President Xi, and that was done. I think the way to characterize what will emerge would be as follows, that it will be a coherent, comprehensive, whole-of-governments, again with an S on the end, uh, approach to China, uh, one in which Uh, All tools available to the U.S. and all tools uh, available to our allies and partners that are possibly can be engaged will be engaged. What I think is the key here is that you will have engagement, you will have cooperation, you will have competition, and you will have deterrence founded on defensive capabilities uh, that are well known to... China and our capabilities that China has to know that we would employ in areas where our core interests would be involved.
0: Dave, you mentioned a number of President Biden's team there, but let me ask you about the president himself. We hosted Vice President Biden actually the year after we hosted you at the Sydney Town Hall. You know him very well, you worked with him closely in various military roles, and also when you were at Langley. He was often at odds with elements of the military when he was vice president. What's your judgment of his instincts towards the world, and in particular, on the question of the use of force? Well,
1: I think, again, that as a general uh, reaction to the post-9-11 wars, it is quite understandable that there is a cautionary approach. uh, It is informed by a recognition that when you roll the iron dice, as Bismarck described the act of going to war, you're never quite sure what results. And certainly, I think we have experienced that. And of course, keep in mind, it's beyond that. It's also the Arab Spring uh, situations, what happened in Libya, what happened in Syria, uh, in Yemen, and so forth. And I think, again, it, it... it is a somewhat chastening uh, experience for those who went through that. And I think that's understandable. Again, I think there should be a very, very careful approach to the commitment of our young men and women to combat. I also, though, think that there have been lessons learned, um, again, some of them the hard way. Uh, Among them, there is, I believe, a recognition that this statement of we want to end endless wars, which President Biden wisely always would then say responsibly, there is a recognition that you don't end endless wars by ending U.S. involvement in them. All you do is end our participation. The war goes on. And this is quite relevant right now because I think of all of the challenges around the world, uh, the great power rivalries, Uh, the revisionist or revolutionary powers, Iran, North Korea, uh, the continued uh, fight against Islamist extremists, cyber challenges, threats to democracy, you name it. All of these, uh, not to mention the pandemic and climate issues. I think all of these in the short term are generally manageable, even a North Korean missile or nuclear test. Again, if we don't make too much of it, I don't think there's going to be some big crisis. Again, there should be a reaction. There should be actions taken. But again, there's we we should have learned from the past four years that it is highly highly unlikely that North Korea is going to give up its nuclear weapons without an enormous number of uh, which I can't conceive, uh, frankly, uh, of of reassurances or uh, confidence building measures. The one, however, which may not prove manageable uh, is Afghanistan where the previous administration drew our forces down to half the level that it is known that reportedly the commander on the ground, a very, very experienced combat leader, General Scott Miller, who worked for me multiple times when he was a Delta Force JSOC and so on. Um, So this is probably too small. Uh, even to continue just the advise, assist, and enable tasks uh, with our Afghan security force partners. The problem with that, Michael, is as you know, you you don't know that it's too small until the Afghan forces start to crumble. if we are unable to provide the kind of support that they need on the battlefield uh, against the Taliban the Haqqani network, the Islamic movement in Uzbekistan, and yes, al Qaeda and the Islamic state. Uh, And then you're in trouble because if it crumbles and it collapses and I've seen forces on the battlefield collapse during Mm. the fight to Baghdad, each of the battles that we had during the initial invasion, we'd fight very fiercely. And all of a sudden it just the the enemy just collapses, sort of disappears. Mm. And and I, you know, that is a fear I have. Uh, Again, this may be a worst case, but military and intelligence leaders get paid to do worst case analysis and then to try to figure out how to mitigate the risks of those realities uh, emerging. So that is a big consideration. Uh, And again, this group in office learned from withdrawing all of our combat forces from Iraq, keep in mind, to be fair to them, there were still 800 to 1,000 Americans on the ground with a three-star general for a train and equip mission, but not a combat, not an advise, assist, enable mission. Mm. And we had to put them back in when, because of the prime minister's highly sectarian actions, he tore apart the fabric of society, once again alienated the Sunni Arabs in a Shia-majority country. All of this then enabled uh, the Islamic State, the former al-Qaeda in Iraq, to reconstitute itself as the Islamic State, drift into Syria, generate enormous additional combat power, money, vehicles, weapons, fighters, leaders, explosives, experts, and then come back into Iraq and make short work of the Iraqi security forces that had also been undermined by various personnel decisions and meddling in the chain of command by the prime minister. We had to go back in. We narrowly enabled the security forces to hold off of closing on the capital of the Kurdish regional government or be the North and also Baghdad uh, in the center of the country. And ultimately, of course, enabled uh, Iraqi security forces help reconstitute them and enabled them to defeat the Islamic state as an army to do de- de- to f- destroy the caliphate, but certainly not to eliminate every last what now are insurgent cells and and uh, terrorist cells. And we've seen tragically some horrific suicide attacks uh, even inside Baghdad itself. So the threat still exists, and therefore our presence should remain. But again, in what would be described as a sustained, sustainable commitment because of the proliferation of drones, which we didn't have during the surge in Iraq or even the surge in Afghanistan. But we were starting to see what they could do if deployed in very considerable numbers. And, you know, this is the leading edge of what combat in the future is going to be. Many more unmanned systems, semi-autonomous systems, and ultimately there will even be autonomous systems. This has enabled us to avoid having our troops on the front lines. So we're dramatically reducing the cost in in blood and also the cost in treasure. Uh, And I think these are very sustainable situations. And moreover, I think we have to have a sustained commitment. And if it can be sustainable, you know, there's certainly no one has been demonstrating over the fact that we have troops in Afghanistan, where over the course of the last year, we have not had a single death in combat. Uh, There have been some in other circumstances, but not actually in combat. So this is going to confront the administration. Uh, They're going to have to decide, are 2,500 enough? And it'll be a tough decision to take if they have to increase them. Now you can thicken the enablers very, very considerably, and that can help a great deal. How you use that 2,500, how you thicken them also with contractors, keeping in mind that, for example, during the surge in Iraq, we had 165,000 American men and women on the ground in uniform. We had even more contractors, actually. Now, many of them were from third countries doing uh, tasks on the bases, like cooking food, washing, doing cleaning, various tasks, to avoid our troops having to do them so that they could do what only they could do, which was go outside the wire and engage the enemy and the population. Um, so again, if you use that very skillfully, and I'm sure that Scott Miller will do that. It is doing that, but I, it's a bit tenuous. Uh, I was on in, in an event with Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, with whom I worked very closely in a variety of tasks over the years, not the least of which was the commander in Afghanistan when he was in charge of the transition of tasks for the Afghans from our forces to Afghan forces, which we began during my time in command. Uh, and I asked him, you know, is this a worst case? Am I, you know, is this beyond what you worry about? And he said, not necessarily. So as the administration thinks, again, it also is influenced, uh, understandably, by the very visceral events that they experienced uh, among them, foremost among them, Iraq and then Afghanistan. I think there's a recognition there are lessons that were learned and and among those, uh, is that, again, if you end your involvement, you don't necessarily end the war. And if we were to end our involvement in Afghanistan, the war would would be very, very dangerous in terms of both our national interests of ensuring that al-Qaeda and now the Islamic State cannot reestablish the kind of uh, sanctuary that al-Qaeda had when it planned the 9-11 attacks there on Afghan soil under the rule of the Taliban.
0: Let me ask you, Dave, you mentioned the Trump administration's policies on Afghanistan. When you think of President Trump's approach to the world, to alliances, you mentioned his North Korea policy. I wonder if you'd give us an assessment of the Trump administration. In 2016, you were under consideration from President-elect Trump to serve in his administration. Do you, do you feel in retrospect you dodged a bullet?
1: Well, first of all, I think you... And being truly objective, and I should also note that I am completely non-political. I don't don't register, I don't support candidates, I don't contribute. I do advise candidates of either party. And I'd like to think that gives me a degree of objectivity as opposed to somebody who is very clearly helping Mm. one campaign or the other. And there were achievements under that administration. Mm. Uh, Ironically, there was very good work done in the first two years, in iraq syria and afghanistan there was a modest increase in forces the authority to take certain actions was delegated down to the levels where it should have been and some of the overly uh, legal restrictions and not very sensible restrictions on the use of our air power uh, were lifted i mean it tried to distinguish between is this the taliban or the al-qaeda we can use force against al-qaeda but not taliban unless they're engaging our soldiers, these, you know, again, if our partners are engaged in combat, we should help them. Uh, Any enemy of our partners is an enemy of ours. And this did enable the, it continued the campaign begun by the, the Obama administration in the fight against the Islamic State. I argue that it accelerated the defeat of the Islamic State and the elimination of the caliphate, noting again, that there are still... Considerable remnants in the form now of insurgent groups and, and terrorist cells, and also, of course, the the virtual caliphate, the caliphate in cyberspace, which has proved much more difficult put a, to put a stake through the heart of than uh, doing that with respect to the leader, Baghdadi, or his successor and so forth. And you have, you know, there are a number of other accomplishments, frankly. The relationship with Japan was very, very strong. With India was very strong. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement was a very significant achievement. Uh, the Abraham Accords are significant. You know, finally dealing with the spat between, which is much more important than a spat, between the Saudis and the Emiratis on the one side and the Qataris on the other, noting that we have facilities in all three of those countries was a very significant achievement as well. But there were some puzzling decisions uh, and troubling ones, frankly, for me, very concerning ones, such as drawing down our forces in Afghanistan when the conditions were not met, uh, were not established that should have been met uh, to warrant that decision. Uh, The multiple decisions to pull out of Syria, then go back in Syria again, there was an inconsistency and incoherence to a number of those actions as well there was considerable activity in the continuation, really, of the Obama rebalance to Asia or pivot to Asia, as often referred to uh, by the Department of Defense. And a lot of very good work, as you would know, especially with Mm. great allies like Australia, the establishment or building on the Quad, uh, India, Australia, Japan, and the US, a variety of initiatives with allies and partners in that region. But it was not comprehensive. And there was also occasionally a lack of coherence to it. Again, if this is really important, then you should participate in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Mm -hmm. which was vastly more significant as a Mm geostrategic agreement, even than it was a trade or economic agreement. Uh, And again, the lack of a truly comprehensive whole of government, much less governments, And this is really where you started, which was the treatment of allies and partners. You know, we've often been critical of partners or allies in NATO that did not spend 2% of GDP. President Obama did that. President Bush, Secretary Gates famously wirebrushed at his final session. I was there as the commander in Afghanistan, I believe. And I was stunned, actually, that, you know, this is going to be everybody's going to praise Secretary Gates. Yeah, uh, and instead he just lambasted them over the failure to of all of them to spend two percent in one particularly big country, not even to spend one point five percent of GDP on defense. But this went way beyond that, needless to say. And of course, it was one of the factors that led uh, Secretary Mattis uh, to resign. Uh, that it was really the the decision to withdraw from Syria again, which ultimately a lot of us actually helped to convince members of the administration to get the president to go back in uh, and to rectify what would have been a very damaging uh, decision otherwise, although there was damage as a result of that, giving up some very key bases and doing it all uh, in a way that was completely unplanned. So again, the, the, the incoming administration, however, I do think we'll have a degree of coherence and comprehensiveness that is very much needed. I actually wrote uh, as a fellow at Harvard at the Belfer Center a few years ago of the imperative of coherence and comprehensiveness in our policy toward China. Uh, And again, that comprehensiveness, not just all of our elements of power, if you will, but uh, a whole of governments with an S on the end.
0: Dave, you mentioned earlier on in a different context, you mentioned the riots at the Capitol on January the 6th. I know you don't want to get into politics, but can I just ask you as an American, how did you feel when you saw that footage in January? And then when you saw some of that dramatic footage that was presented in the impeachment trials in the Senate, you've observed coups around the world, you've observed insurrections and, and the like. How did that make you feel as, a, as, a, as an American?
1: No, I mean, it was, it was absolutely shocking. Uh, and I happened to be watching, I was actually pedaling a bicycle on a digital cycling app called Zwift, in which mm. we we're invested, I might add and which is fantastic. And I, and I will often do that at certain news hours. Mm. And I was watching the proceedings on the floor of the Senate, uh, at that time when all of this broke loose. And it was absolutely shocking. This was horrific. Uh, this was an insurrection. Uh, it's it's a miracle that it was not vastly worse. Mm. You know how ferocious and unreasonable a mob can be. I have faced riots, mm. and the scariest moment in uniform for me actually was was the occasion or occasions when you face an angry mob that has weapons and that could shoot. And if a shooting starts, it's very difficult to stop. So this was a huge shock. It was truly horrific. And I must say that, uh, again, it's a very, very low point in our democracy. However, I'm actually quite proud to watch the proceedings now as the House has just concluded. In fact, it's... uh, its case for the impeachment of the president uh, and his disqualification. And again, I think it's in some respects, it shows the resilience of our democracy, uh, having uh, gone to a very low place, frankly, uh, in that particular episode and in some others, frankly, uh, in the wake of the election. You know, President Reagan spoke about the United States being the shining city on a hill. Uh, so, you know, a beacon of light, I guess, to others around the world. And I thought to myself, you know, it's hard to be a shining city on the hill uh, if that hill is under assault uh, by an armed mob of your own citizens. So again, a very, very damaging episode uh, in our country's history. Uh, and an enormous uh, challenge to our democracy, but touch wood one that we have weathered and one from which I hope we emerge stronger, uh, more resilient and more aware of what a moment of consequence and reckoning this was for our country.
0: Dave, final question. If I ask you to think over the course of your career, you've encountered so many Powerful and interesting, influential people. We've spoken about some of them today. But if you were to identify one or two who impressed you the most, uh, whether for good or or ill, who would you nominate?
1: Well, I might offer two. Uh, one was the greatest mentor that I ever had, uh, and that was General Jack Galvin. I mentioned he was the Supreme Allied Commander who pulled mm-hmm. me out of West Point to be his Special assistant speechwriter. He was the one who pulled me down to Southern Command. I I worked for him when he was a division commander as his aide, an enormously important influence in my life. He was the one who asked, as I was weighing whether to go to graduate school or to the Ranger Regiment, he said, have you ever considered raising your intellectual sights beyond the maximum effective range of an M60 machine gun? (laughs) And I took the message. Uh, He was a soldier statesman scholar. Uh, he'd written three books, uh, He taught English at West point. He was mm-hmm. a tree. He was ultimately the Dean of the Fletcher school. As you may remember, mm-hmm. extraordinary man. And I, uh, really worshiped him and he was a massive mentor of mine, uh, all the way through, through thick and through thin. I remember in a tough moment, one time he said, sent me a message. He said, a soldier is down. How can I help? Uh, he's really, really uh, and tragically uh, passed away, uh, very likely from the effects of uh, Parkinson's that was induced by exposure to Agent Orange, as my own father-in-law, another four-star general, also uh, experienced. So he was extraordinary. And then actually, President George W. Bush, in his, there were two Bushes when it came to Iraq. There was the Bush who largely allowed, almost subcontracted the war's prosecution to his secretary of defense, uh, Secretary Rumsfeld. And then there was the president who courageously, when it's really going terribly, decides not to pull out, not to give up, not to throw in the towel, but to surge, and picks a new commander and a new ambassador and takes charge of the war himself, has a one-hour video teleconference with us every Monday morning, 7.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the entire team around the Situation Room table. And again, he directly takes charge of this effort. And he empowers us in a way that I don't think any commander and Ambassador, have been empowered in modern history, gave us enormous support, latitude, authority. uh, And frankly, when some of the other elements in various institutions, which understandably were under enormous strain because of the demands that the ambassador and I were making for troops and diplomats and development workers and intelligence officers and so forth, he ensured that the government did everything that it could. I remember he he said right before I went out, went back for the surge. Of course, I'd been there as a two-star commander, a three-star commander, and then had that period where we did the counterinsurgency field manual, overhauled all aspects of preparation of our our commanders, our staffs, forces, units, equipment, everything else, and the exercises, the preparation. Uh, and he said, "Well, General, we're doubling down." And I said, "Mr. President, your military is going all in." And we need the rest of government to go on with us. And he ensured that that was the case. Uh, And that was an extraordinary exercise of leadership. Uh, In many respects, he had committed some of his presidency on that outcome. And I'd like to think that we validated his his decision to conduct the surge uh, and, frankly, to empower the individuals that he put in charge of it to have a true comprehensive civil military campaign uh, that ultimately drove violence down by some 85%.
0: Well, thank you, David Petraeus, for speaking with me today on the Director's Chair about your life and career and the state of global affairs. You've taken us from Cornwall-on-Hudson to Princeton, the plains of Germany, to Baghdad, Kabul, Washington, and indeed Sydney. And Dave, I hope we can welcome you back to Bly Street before too long. Thank you, David Petraeus.
1: A pleasure, Michael, and I look forward to being back.
0: You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fulilove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.